amen, amen. It's good to see everybody today. I hope you're glad that you are here in God's house, amen. I want to welcome you to week two of our five-week series through uh, the letter to Titus that we are calling The Good Life. And uh, I want to jump right in, so get your Bibles out, turn your Bibles on. Uh, We're going to be reading our text for the day, which is Titus 1, verses 5 through 16. Listen as God's people to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, beginning in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, He must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Amen. In 1985, The Getty Museum in Los Angeles paid $10 million for a statue that was thought to be from the 6th century B.C. And the museum put it on display the next year, 1986, after more than 30 experts had examined it and they had concluded that it was authentic. But then the next year after this, 1987, there was further examination that concluded that this was indeed a forgery. At first, the Getty displayed this statue proudly as this tremendous historical find. It even made its way to the front page of the New York Times. But doubts about its authenticity remained, and more experts kept looking. And the more they looked, the more questions that they had. And they began more and more to discern kind of a mix of styles that were taken from different historical periods. Certain things just didn't look right. And eventually, uh, everyone pretty much concluded that this was indeed a forgery. So here's a question. What do you do when you pay $10 million for a statue that probably is a fake? Well, here's what the Getty Museum did. You put a plaque by it that says, Greek, about 530 BC or modern forgery. (laughs) You pick. You take your choice. And you, you actually, as they did, you display this statue for over 30 years. It was only uh, finally taken down and put back into storage just a, a few years ago. 
this summer I, I was reading a novel that centered actually around uh, art forgeries, and I, I looked some facts about art forgeries up, and it's estimated that over $6 billion is spent every year on art forgeries. The number actually many people think could be much higher because uh, if you have been duped into spending millions of dollars on a forgery, you are often, as you would I think recognize, quite reluctant to own up to that fact. Well, people are fooled by counterfeits all the time. And the reason is that counterfeits often look so much like the real thing. Counterfeits deceive. And counterfeits also, they distort value. Uh, Just imagine if a, a, a torrent of counterfeit money flooded into our country. It would create mass confusion It would cheapen the value of true currency, real currency. We would all need to learn how to tell the fakes from the real. Counterfeits are dangerous. Here's my question for this morning. What if the greatest threat to the movement of the Christian gospel did not come from the outside? What if it came from the inside? What if the greatest threat to your spiritual health was not all those things out there in the world, Satan attacking the world, attacking the world, the flesh and the devil, you know, coming all at you. What if the greatest danger to you was actually here in the church from counterfeit gospels? What if the greatest danger to you was inside your own heart because our fallen, broken hearts sometimes are prone to listen to counterfeits See, this is uh, what Paul the Apostle is dealing with here in in Titus. And I think if you've ever found yourself cheated by a counterfeit of some kind, you would have an idea of how Paul felt when he wrote this letter to Titus, probably in the year 64 AD. If you remember from last week, we said that Paul had left Titus in charge of the churches on this island of Crete, and he had told Titus that there were errors that Titus needed to address. You see, Paul, Paul wasn't content to, to put up signs at the churches saying, you know, the gospel preached here might be real or might be fake. You choose. Because he knew that souls were at stake, that spiritual health was at stake. He knew that the good of the cities where these churches had been planted, that was also at stake. And this is still true today. You see, citizens of God's kingdom who live among the world's kingdoms we must learn to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. You know, some of you today, you're here, and here's the reality, you're not a Christian. Uh, Maybe you've come today because somebody's asked you, but maybe your mind is just made up already about Christianity. Maybe you have decided it is not true, or maybe you've decided it's just not for me. But maybe... Maybe what you've rejected is not, in fact, the true Christian gospel. Maybe you've actually rejected a counterfeit Christianity. Some of you, you're Christ followers, but maybe you're here today and you're struggling today with your faith. And maybe the reason that you're struggling is you have been deceived by some teaching that actually is not in the word of God. And it's taken you down a path that confuses you, that deters you from knowing the truth, that keeps you from experiencing what God has for you. Counterfeits often 
do surface in the church. And what Paul is telling us is something that's always true. We always need discernment. All of us need it. And, and you need to understand that discernment is not only the ability to tell between right and wrong. Discernment is also the ability to tell the difference between right and almost right. Between right and almost right. Like those experts who examined that statue at the Getty and they observed a, a, a mixture of styles from different historical eras. There was the fake and there was the real. Counterfeit gospels always have some truth, but it's mixed with lies. So how do we learn to confront these counterfeits? In the text that I've just read for you today, Paul shows Titus two important ways, and these are kind of big overarching things that we're going to see that we'll have to flesh out in the particulars over the course of our lives. But we need both of these things to experience the good life. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Number one, uh, we need to develop and support godly leadership. Paul is talking about this truth that every church needs healthy, godly leadership. If you go back to verse five, Paul actually tells Titus the reason he's writing, the purpose for this letter. He says, the reason I left you in Crete, there, there it is, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now again, we, we don't know why Paul had to leave Crete when he did with uh, this business that was still unfinished. But what he's talking about here is what we always need and that's this need for godly leadership. He is saying, Titus, there's some things that are not done. You've got to do those things. You, you've got to put them in order. This is actually uh, the word put in order that we would say make straight. It's the root of the word that we would use for things like orthodontics. Uh, Paul says, you've got to put some things in order that are not done. And he says, next, the way you do that is you appoint elders in every town. A lot of us have kind of interesting relationships with leadership in general. There are a lot of us who either deify or demonize leadership. We go to one extreme or the other. We elevate leaders to this place that they can never be questioned or we're always resisting, we're always fighting them, we're always criticizing leaders as if they are the cause of all of the bad things in the world. But Paul is taking us back to what is essential. He says, godly leadership is that. And you know, there, there are two ways you can kill a movement. Uh, one, of course, is bad leadership. When you have abusive leaders or you, you have hypocritical leaders, they don't practice what they preach. That always damages the church. But no leadership will also always damage the church. No leadership always kills a movement because without leaders, things drift. There's no direction uh, I, sometimes I talk to people who kind of have this idea about the early church, like it was the perfect place, you know, this, this like perfect, like organic community where everybody just got along, you know, all of the people at the early church were always just there together serving each other soy lattes, you know, they were, they were all like organic, free range, fair trade, you know, and peace and, and love and, and joy. It was just all perfect. And if you think that, I have only one question for you. Have you ever actually read the New Testament? <laughs> I mean, you know, the truth is, read the New Testament, you'll see the early church was often a lot more like an episode of Christians Gone Wild than that. You know, there's just a lot of problems, and apparently it was, it was like next level, that kind of thing in, in Crete. 
And that's why Paul is saying every church needs elders and overseers, as we see in verses six and seven. You will notice he calls these leaders in verse six elders. And then the very next verse, verse seven, he talks about overseers. And I wanna point out uh, to you three things about these leaders that you need to know. First of all, elders and overseers, uh, that, those terms refer to the same person. It refers to the same office. There's not a difference. It's clear when you read these two verses that he's speaking about the same people. And the word elder uh, uh, points toward what should be spiritual maturity in these uh, leaders' lives. The word overseer points toward their task, the job that they have, which is giving oversight, uh, exercising management of the church. Now at Southwinds, uh, we flesh this out like this. We have pastor elders and our vocation, our job, our calling, our full-time commitment is to serve among God's people in God's church. We also have at Southwinds what we call lay elders or non-staff elders who volunteer and who give support to the pastors, who give oversight to the pastors and to the church family. Second, you need to know that, that God's plan is that every church should have a team of elders. Notice Paul says to appoint elders, it's plural, in every town. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but let me just say spiritual leadership works best when there's a team, when it's not just up to one person, when there's more than one person and together they support each other, they, together they complement each other, together whenever it's needed, they, they actually challenge and maybe even rebuke each other. Third, the main job of elders was to care for God's people by teaching them. That's the job. That's the central task, to teach God's word to God's people. And, and Paul is just making it very, very clear in this that every church needs leaders. But a, a big question is what kind of leaders? What are the qualifications for an elder? Who says that someone could be or should be an elder and maybe not? Well, this is what Paul talks about uh, in verses six through 10. And what we have here is less of a job description and more of a character description. And if you are paying really careful attention, you may have already picked up on this, but there's one overarching requirement that Paul gives. One word shows up two times, once in verse six, once in verse seven. It's the word that the NIV translates blameless. Maybe you have a translation that renders it above reproach. Same thing. Well, what does this mean? What does blameless mean? Well, can we all agree it does not mean sinless? Because that would mean no one could ever be qualified to lead God's church, right? Does that make sense? And I mention that because some people get a little confused there sometimes. <laughs> what blameless means is there, there, there is no pattern of sin in this person's life that is not being dealt with. There, there is no outstanding charge of offense that, that can be legitimately laid against this person. Now, again, we need to be clear. Godly character is not determined by the absence of mistakes, but by how we handle them. We all sin. And all God's people should be saying, we all sin, right? Yeah, we all sin. But when we sin, what do we do with it? See, we talk about this at Southwinds all the time. When we sin, we are called to repent. 
We are called to repent. That means to turn away from our sin. And if you have sinned against someone, repentance means you will go to them and you will seek their forgiveness. This is called reconciliation. You're to seek reconciliation. When you repent and when you confess and when you seek reconciliation, if you are living a life where this is happening, then you can be described as blameless. And it doesn't mean you never do anything wrong. It means that when you do, you take your sin to God and you take your sin to people. You seek to make it right. You don't just ignore it. You don't just rationalize it, excuse it. You don't deny it. And if you do this, you are blameless. And it is possible for every leader, it is also possible for every believer to lead a blameless life. Do you see? See, what Paul is driving at here is just this reality. Everyone sins, and the question is, what do we do with our sin? Everyone sins, but what is our sin about? Is our sin something that's incidental, it happens, or is our sin something that's fundamental, like it's at the core of our life? Is our sin exception, or is it rule? Is it a, a pattern that marks your life? And Paul is, he's looking for patterns. It's not sinlessness, it is a repentant heart. And he is just driving at something so important for all leaders, also all believers, especially for leaders. He's just saying this, you know, if, if someone cannot oversee or manage, or if your word talks about a steward, it's the same concept, steward their own life, then they cannot oversee or manage or steward the church. It starts with you. So God calls people to be leaders in the church and he says the chief qualification is that they are blameless or above reproach. But then you might ask, well, what does that look like? And Paul says, well, let me help you with that. He, he lists in these verses 11 things and five of them are negative and six of them are positive. Five are things that should not mark an elder's life. Six are things that, that should. And we can kind of organize these 11 things into three areas of life, three spheres. We'll start at verse six where Paul starts with looking at an elder's marriage and family. He, he really asks two questions about what it means to be blameless in this area. He says, is their marriage healthy and are the children faithful? So Paul says, uh, a man who's going to be an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, everyone agrees who can read the Greek text that the literal translation of this would be, this person is a one woman man. Uh, Paul is not asking, are you married, actually? The question is, is your marriage a healthy marriage? Everyone agrees that, this says a one woman man, literally in the Greek, not everyone agrees about what that exactly means. And there are a lot of different interpretations about this. I'm gonna tell you what I believe. Uh, I'm gonna share with you my, my humble and accurate opinion on this. Um, that's a joke, okay, especially in light of what I'm about to get to, but it's a joke, okay? If you can't take a joke, that's something else. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that Paul is really asking the question, is the marriage healthy? Uh, Paul, you need to know, is not excluding single people from this office. There's a good likelihood that Paul was single, and so he would not have been excluded. Marriage is assumed here because it's the norm, but it's not commanded here. 
But he says, if the elder is married, is it a healthy marriage? In other words, you would ask the question, is the husband and the wife, are they following Christ together? And then, and then Paul moves to children, and he asks the question, are they faithful? Now, the NIV says the children believe. Um, I believe that a better translation would be faithful. Uh, and let me clarify why I would say this. First of all, the word for children speaks of, of young children, uh, who are living in the uh, parent's home. It does not speak uh, you know, of someone who has grown and gone into adulthood is living their own life. Um, the Bible um, never says that parents are responsible to make their children believers, right? Do, do we understand that? And uh, Paul is not saying that every child of a leader will automatically always be a believer. See, only God can change a heart. Uh, only God is responsible for that. But parents, parents are responsible to point their children in the right direction. Parents are responsible to disciple and to discipline their children, to teach them about Jesus, to teach them to obey. I, I think what Paul is specifically saying is while these, are, these children are in the home of the elder, they must not be children who are wild and living in rebellion. He uses Greek words that are the same words used in the story of the prodigal son, so you kind of get a picture. Uh, Paul is talking uh, about, uh, about that sort of thing while they're in the home. He's not making a statement that a person who serving God as a leader in the church, and maybe that they serve God for 15 or 20 years, and, and down the road at some point, one of their children rejects the faith. Um, if you hold to that interpretation, you're gonna run into a lot of problems. The people that I've seen holding that interpretation never seem to fully uh, apply it because they always find someone who they really like, who they believe is faithful, who probably is really faithful, and they find out that person doesn't have a child who believes, and they say, well, this is an exception. Let's just understand that it is not a hard, fast, ironclad kind of rule that, that you know, um, Paul is laying out. Now, again, this also doesn't mean that the children are perfect of pastors, that those children never disobey. Again, uh, Romans 3.23 is true for everyone, amen? Uh, and I don't know if you know this, uh, but my dad was a pastor for over 50 years. And so that means I grew up in a pastor's home. That means that I, I grew up as a PK. If you haven't been around church very long, I'll interpret that for you. It means preacher's kid. And uh, I can tell you that there are some people in the church who get pretty weird about their expectation for the children of pastors. Um, you know, people would say stuff like, well, you've, you're a pastor's kid, so you've probably memorized the whole Bible like in the original languages in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And I would just say, no, just 25 of those 66 books. I'm only nine. <laughs> There's this kind of a thing that, that works sometimes where people just aren't really thinking clearly. Paul is not giving absolutes here. He's requiring health. He's requiring growth. No one is perfect. Pastors and leaders and elders, they're not perfect. Then he moves to a second area, and that is an elder's character. 
and their conduct. Verses seven and eight, he says, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless again. And now he, he starts giving uh, these characters. And he's talking about this reality. If an elder is a manager, if an elder is a steward, if he has oversight over the church, there's this principle of stewardship and it starts with the small and it moves to the large. If you cannot manage yourself, if you cannot manage your family, then how can you manage and lead God's house? And this is where Paul goes into these 11 attributes of five negative, six positive. He begins with the five negative, and these are things that need to be put to death in our lives. Uh, John Owen once said, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And there are some things that all of us need to get rid of in our life. And I wanna keep emphasizing this, not just pastors, not just leaders, not just elders, but all of us. And the first one he mentions is pride or arrogance. Uh, the NIV translates this overbearing. Uh, this word in the Greek describes a person who is unwilling to listen. They just kind of run over people. Now, here's what I wanna point out because there are some of you right now who hear this and your personality is not that and so you are like checking this one off your list thinking I don't really do that. Here's the reality, some people are prideful in obvious ways. Their pride's like out there, it shows up, you know, you know, comes around the corner before they do, it's always there, uh, it's always there for everyone to see but some people are very quietly prideful, very subtly prideful. And so you may not be the stereotypical overbearing person, but you may be someone who shows your pride because you just don't listen to other people. And you may ask for their advice, but you never take it. It shows up in things like you're always trying to do it all by yourself. You don't wanna let anyone in. You don't wanna let anyone help you. You can't let others in. It shows up how you're always worried about what other people think about you, how you look to them, your appearance to them. That's pride. And Paul is saying this should not mark leaders, but he's also saying this should not mark any follower of Christ, right? Instead, all of us, especially leaders, should be humble, considerate of others' perspectives. We should actually listen to other people. We should actually welcome their counsel, allow them to serve us and help us. We need to kill pride in our lives. Second, the, the, the word is translated quick-tempered. And this describes people who just lose it all the time. They have, we might say, and this is kind of a, a way of, I think, masking it. We say, oh, anger, I have anger management issues. Um, that's kind of a way of softening it, if you, you understand. I mean, I could use the phrase sometimes, but this is about you don't control your anger. You just blow up all the time. And again, this should not be so among any of us who follow Christ, but especially pastors, especially elders, especially leaders. We need to kill anger. Third word is, Drunkenness. Now, you would think this would be an obvious one, but Paul knows we're all good with the loopholes, right? All good with the loopholes. Well, you know, I, I was just buzzed. I was just buzzed. Well, Paul is clear, drunkenness has to go. And, and if you're worried about the line or you're thinking there's a line out there and you're trying to get right up to it, you're probably violating what Paul is talking about here. Now, this does not mean that every pastor, leader, 
uh, every elder, every Christian even has to totally abstain. Some of you who have been through our, our membership class, you know, because we talk about this, our, our pastors here at Southwinds have voluntarily made a commitment to abstain, but the Bible doesn't say that it's always a sin to drink, um, that it's not, it, it, the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink in moderation, but there must be no addiction. There must be no drunkenness. To be drunk is sin, even if you're sitting at home. It just is. It has to go. It's part of the stewardship of your life. Fourth, and it got really quiet there all of a sudden. I'm not, <laughs> not sure why. Um, I'll just leave that up to you to decide. Fourth is violence. A pastor or elder must not be violent in any way, whether that is physically or verbally or emotionally. Now, some of you may not ever be violent physically, but here's the truth. You are violent verbally. And it needs to stop. One of the things that this means is that abuse of any kind disqualifies someone from being a pastor. Some of you may be aware that our denomination has been in the process for a few years now of of uncovering uh, sexual abuse that has been happening among certain leaders of the church. Um, It has been in the process of uncovering how Certain other leaders have covered that abuse up, have not dealt with it forthrightly. And I just wanna say, you know, our position at Southwinds, my position as your pastor is that abuse of any kind is a horrific evil and it must be dealt with. It must not be covered up. Uh, It's kind of an interesting thing. The Department of Justice recently launched an investigation into aspects of our denomination and as, as your pastor, I'll tell you what I think. I am praying that God will expose all evil. I am praying that God will bring healing to anyone who is abused. The Bible forbids violence. The Bible says abuse of any kind is evil. The Bible says it has no place in God's household. Fifth is greed. Don't be greedy. This is a requirement of, uh, of, to be an elder. Now, here's what I will say about that. If you're going into ministry uh, for money, you're not real bright, okay? So maybe you're too dumb to, to go into the ministry. I don't know. But, you know, unless you're like on TV or you're, you know, you're in one of those places where you actually are allowed to sell prayer hankies, stuff like that. Um, but we don't have any hankies for sale here, okay? Now, it is right, the Bible talks about this, for a church to properly provide for those who serve full-time as, as pastors. But it's wrong, for pastors to exploit and to take advantage of others. We, we must not be like the pastor. Maybe you saw this. It was out there on the interwebs this week, this pastor in another state who got real famous real quick because he ranted at his church and he did it on video, another sign, don't be too dumb. Um, and he did this, he ranted at his church because they did not buy him a Movado watch that probably cost like thousands of dollars. Uh, pastors are not to be greedy. Now, having looked at these negatives, here's one I wanna ask you. I want you to just think about this list for a moment. Do all of these things apply to you as a member of the body of Christ? If you agree and would say yes to that question, would you please raise your hand right now? Is there 
anything in that list that does not apply to you as a member of the body of Christ? And the answer to that is no, there's nothing. It all applies to every one of us. And if that is the case, then every one of us should be killing those sins in our lives, not just the pastors, not just the elders. Amen? And just think, what if, what if all those things were absent from our communities? What if there was no more arrogance and pride and rage and drunkenness and violence and greed? I mean, that would be incredible, wouldn't it, if they were absent from our communities? I mean, the news would be super boring, um, but life would be really good. See, we all need to pray for God's grace that we would all be killing these things in our lives. Well, let's move very quickly to the six things a leader must build into their life. First, he is to be hospitable. Uh, the word literally means a love for strangers. So a, a good pastor, elder, leader, loves people, cares for people, is willing to open their home for people, willing to let people into their lives, welcome them in. He spends time with people. That's, that's being like Jesus. Second, he loves what is good. This means that godly leaders are devoted to the good of others. They're, they're joyful when good happens to others. They don't just think about how you know, good benefits them. They just want good everywhere. They love good. Third is self-control. And this would be the opposite of drunkenness and violence. And this means, again, as I kind of said in different ways, before you pastor anyone else, you have to pastor yourself. If you cannot control yourself, then how can you lead God's people and this is about our bodies, and this is about our minds, and this is about our words. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It needs to mark a pastor. Fourth, upright, that means that a, a leader is to be honest and fair in his dealings with other people. Fifth, holy, that means the leader is continually seeking to become more like Jesus. So we order our lives by the word of God. We, we live the way that God tells us to live, and Finally, summing it all up in a sense is this last word, discipline, because none of the things before this happen if you're not disciplined. Leaders must lead disciplined lives, spiritually disciplined with, with, with times regularly of Bible study and, and prayer, physically disciplined, taking care of our bodies, emotionally disciplined, verbally disciplined. We control our tongues and we do this because God is control of all things and we wanna live under him. And this all comes together and what it all means when you put it together and think about it is leaders in the church must give evidence, evidence that their lives have been changed by the Holy Spirit. They must have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives and that fruit should be ripening. But this again and I cannot emphasize this too much. This is to be true for every single one of you. Every one of us is to always in our lives, always demonstrate the life-changing power of the gospel. And I'm pointing this out for this reason because I've seen this happen. If you come to this list and you like to use this list like as a basis to criticize and judge pastors and judge elders, you're not doing it right, okay? You're not doing it right. This list is also for you. And this list is the good life. It's a good way to live. It's a life of joy and peace and fulfillment. Your life when, will be blessed when you are living like this, when you are growing like this. But there's one more thing more than that I wanna point out. It, it's also this list, this life. It's also for those who are watching you. 
And there may be some in this room right now. Some of you, you have, you have come to Christ and, and he has rescued you from, from deep, deep trouble in your life. There's a lot of pain in your past. You were enmeshed in a lot of patterns of sin in your past. Some of you with these struggles in your life, some of you live in kind of this baseline fear that maybe one day I'm gonna fall back. I'm gonna go back where I was. I know I'm speaking to some of you right now. That's how you, want, you feel. You wonder about that. And here's the thing, if this is not you, here's the thing I want you to see. When, when you live a life that shows in, in demonstrable ways that God has changed you and God is changing your life, it is providing compelling evidence to your brothers and sisters who struggle, that change is possible, that they do not have to fall back into sin, that they do not have to go back to their old ways, that they have truly been set free. You see how important this is? And, and, and really, we, we, we need leaders to help make that happen. Uh, that, in part, is this third sphere. That's an elder's doctrine. Verse nine, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Again, as I said earlier, the, the primary role of elders is to care for the flock through faithful teaching. This only happens when an elder holds fast to the trustworthy word. So that's where it starts. Elders must hold fast to the trustworthy word. And Paul gives two reasons, positively, uh, they do this by teaching sound doctrine, and that brings encouragement. Then negatively, he says, by refuting those who oppose the truth of the gospel. Now, we don't like rebuke in our culture, but rebuke is always part of healthy teaching. To say not just what is true, but also what is not true and so he's telling Titus, you know, Titus, you got a really good opportunity to practice this because in Crete, like, it's nuts. It's just nuts. And, and really, that leads to what's next, the second important way, and this is very, very briefly, uh, we find the good life when there is refuting and rebuking of false teaching. So what do we need to learn about uh, re refuting and rebuking false teaching? Three things. First of all, in verse 10, we need to learn to discern the identity of false teachers. Um, it talks about, especially those of the circumcision group, or if you are reading from the ESV, it says, especially those of the circumcision party. If you're reading from the ESV, you might be thinking, that's, a, that's one party I don't wanna go to. Um, <laughs> and then in verse 14, Paul refers to Jewish myths, to merely human commands. So he's telling us that part of the false teaching going on there in Crete were uh, where Christ followers are trying to be pulled back to Judaism. They're, these are basically the Pharisees of Crete. But there are also, as we're, we're gonna see, others who are mixing pagan practices with the truth. And you might write this down. Error always comes in one of two basic forms, either legalism, like law-keeping, rule-keeping, or license. Legalism or license. And license means, oh, you can do whatever you want because God forgives by grace, and he'll just, he'll just say, you're forgiven. So we don't, it doesn't matter how, how we live. Error always comes like that, either from prideful rule-keeping or from grace-abusing and sinful lawlessness. That's where false teaching always ends up. Second, Paul says we need to be alert to their destructive influences. 
That's what he's talking about in verse 11, how this teaching is disrupting whole households. And this is about families, but it's probably more than that. Most of these churches probably met in a home. And so there's a really good chance when he talks about household, he's talking about an entire group of gathered believers. This teaching is disrupting. Uh, False teaching wrecks families. It wrecks homes. It wrecks churches. Third, he says, be aware of their sinful character. This is verse 12. And Paul quotes, uh, this is probably the uh, poet Epimenides from the 6th century BC. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this saying is true. And we're kind of like, well, that's kind of rude, Paul. That's kind of rude. But Paul isn't saying everyone in Crete's like that. He's saying these teachers, these false teachers are. And again, he's wanting his readers to, un- to grasp the danger of false teaching, to not minimize it or excuse it or just pretend it doesn't matter. And that's why he, he says next that the good life requires us to refute and rebuke false teaching. We, we see this in verses 13 and 14. He says, rebuke them sharply. That's a command. Rebuke them sharply. And notice the purpose of rebuke, so that they will be sound in their faith See, if you truly love people, you will want them to be sound in their faith because that's the only way to the good life. You will want them to be healthy. So that means that rebuke, when it's properly done, is not a contradiction of love. It's actually an expression of love. And rebuke is hard. And that's why some of us won't do it. Rebuke takes courage. And some of us don't have courage. That's why we don't do it. And it's going to take love. And we need to have courage and love And if you are someone who is unwilling to say that someone is wrong, unwilling to say that some teaching is wrong, it is a sign that you lack discernment. It is a sign that you lack love. Paul says that false ideas and teachings are always merely human commands, just like our ideas, and they always damage people. Paul says we need the words of God, not human words. In verses 15 and 16, Paul is telling us here that without God's truth that's found in God's word, our minds and our consciences will be corrupted. Without God's truth that's found in God's word, we may claim to know God, but we'll end up denying God by our actions. We will end up, Paul says, unfit for doing anything good. And I just wanna ask you, are you willing to ask yourself, have I been deceived by a counterfeit? Are you willing to ask that question ever in your life? We all need to live in a place where we can ask that question of ourselves because we're all broken, fallen, sinful people. We're all susceptible to things that aren't true. You know, we've talked about this before, but all of us should know that there are actually two ways to rebel against God. One of them is you break all the laws. You know, you break his laws. You deny that you need a savior. That's a way to rebel against God. But there's another way to rebel against God, and it's very easy for people like us to do this one. You keep all of his laws so that you become your own savior. And in the end, it's like you don't think you even need him. See, it is not just enough as we're looking at this for us to confess our sinful acts, the sinful things that we do. We also must, according to God's word, confess our sinful hearts. You see, if you wanna find the good life, if you wanna find truth, you have to start by seeing your sin for what your sin truly is. And this is what counterfeits never do. 
You know, if you only talk about sin and it's just the things you do, certain things you do, then you kind of see sin as manageable. You think, I can just stop doing those things and I'll be, be good. But that's how counterfeits see it. Sin is just a few acts that I can deal with and not do and get rid of on my own. But the Bible says no. The Bible says before we ever did sinful acts, we had sinful hearts. And it's the sin in our hearts that results in our sinful acts. It's the sin in our hearts that's the core of our problem. And you know, when you stop, when you understand this, you will stop comparing yourself to other people you will start seeing yourself in the light of God's holiness. When you see sin for what it truly is, when you read the word of God and you, you understand what the word says about sin, that, that you stand before a holy God, you understand that God is not looking at his people and deciding who's the better you know, sinner. He, he, he's looking at who's more repentant because all of us have sinful hearts. Therefore, all of us are called to repent and to repent regularly Charles Spurgeon once said, repenting of the evil act without repenting of the evil heart is like men pumping water out of a sinking ship, forgetting to stop the leak at the bottom. And that's what many of us are doing. The boat is sinking. There's a leak at the bottom and we're just trying to bail water. We're not actually addressing the wrong problems. And this is you. It means you're trying to save yourself. And I'm telling you today, that's a counterfeit. That will not lead to the good life. But I have good news. The real thing, the real thing is not only true, it is far, far better. See, these legalistic, moralistic, traditionalistic, materialistic counterfeits, these sin-filled, grace-abusing counterfeits, all of these lead to despair. All of these lead to destruction. But it is in the gospel that we find the good life, the true life, that we experience grace it's like King David said in Psalm 51, God's looking for a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. That's the way of repentance. That's the way to the good life. And that's the thing counterfeits never do. And that leads second. Not only do we see our sin truly, but we, we see our savior for who he truly is. And this is what counterfeits always avoid. They, they try to minimize sin or they try to minimize our savior. And the gospel is so good. The gospel tells us that our sin is far worse than we could possibly imagine. But the gospel tells us our savior is more beautiful. He is more kind. He is more filled with love and mercy than you ever dared to dream. He is your righteousness the gospel says Jesus Christ alone lived a perfect life, alone perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. That Jesus Christ, he was cut off and cast out for our sins. He went to a cross to pay the price for what we had done for our mistakes, our failures. He experienced the darkness of sin. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. And Jesus says your life must be grounded in what he has done for you, not on anything you would do. The good news and the good life is that it is only through Jesus' finished work on the cross, it is only through Jesus' resurrection from the dead that we can know the good life. Do you understand the resurrection means that there is a, there is a human heartbeat at the very throne of God right now in Jesus Christ. He lives and intercedes for his people 
He cleanses our consciences. He builds our character and he brings us together in community so that we can become a place where every one of us together is seeking the truly good life. You see, the Bible teaches that we all share the same problem and that that means we all need the same solution, which is Jesus Christ. His faithfulness makes you faithful. His purity makes you pure. His love makes you lovely. This is our savior. Praise God. Praise God. Counterfeits are always powerless to bring life. Only Jesus and his gospel brings life. And so I hope that you today are seeing this and I hope that your heart today is beating, maybe beating faster because you wanna know more about this. You want to experience the good life, the true life, the lovely life that Jesus has, that he has for you. Jesus says, I have come. I have come that you might know life abundant, life to the full. It's what he wants for his people. Are you willing to receive that, live in that? That's what he offers us. This is the word of the Lord for us today, Southwinds. Will you say amen to that word? Would you bow your heads now as we pray? Father, we thank you for your inspired, truthful word. We're, We're thankful, Lord, that your word is profitable for all things. Lord, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, Lord, that that the person of God may be equipped, ready for every good work. And Lord, I just pray that you would use your word today by your spirit to change us. We, we thank you again that Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live and, and then he died the death we should have died and then you raised him from the grave to live forevermore. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to die for the liar and the glutton and the evil beasts and that he came to give them new life. Lord, we thank you that you have given us life, that by your grace, we can know you. So Lord, help us. Help us today and tomorrow to live out a life that is truly blameless and to live it in a way that glorifies your name, to live, Lord, the the good life. And we pray you would bless your church today. We pray that we would display your glory today as your people today before this world that we live in today. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name and all God's people said.